question number one. KJV only. So this is question 10 on your end, uh, I think. Um, so KJV only people scare me. They make it seem like there are no other versions. They also make it seem like you are not saved if you read another version. I find the KJV harder to understand, so I do not read as much as I would, as, as much as I would like. I know some versions are bad, like the new one called The Passion and also The Message. What versions do you recommend and what should I stay away from? Also, is the KJV the best Bible to use and do only saved people understand it? And then finally, part of that question is the Amplified bad. Wow, that's a lot. There's a lot in that one. What do you think, Andy? You want me to you want me to start out? So, first of all, um, you know, so these are questions from your listeners and and people. Is that right, or are these coming from you, Kim? Correct. Yeah. I've gotten questions. No, no, no. I've gotten questions. <laughs> that that determines how harsh I can be in my answer. <laughs> I want you to be whether whatever audience it is. I've gotten these questions uh, via my Rumble comments. Okay. Uh, also email, and then before YouTube. Uh, came to my channel. So, yeah. Yes. No. This is. These are all from listeners, except for my last question that I want to answer. Awesome. So yeah. So there are certainly degrees of of what we might call King James only uh, approach. Um, and you know, I have more respect for some than others. Um, let me give you an example. I'm speaking at a church in June in California that I've spoken at before. It's a pretty large conference, and they've asked me every time I speak to make sure my slides are KJV. But I've talked to the pastor, and he says he's not KJV only, and he hopes over time to transition the church into something like New King James, for example. But given the culture there and some of the older folks that have really been foundations in the church, out of respect for them, it would be a stumbling block if they were to just suddenly change versions. So I think a lot of it is cultural. Uh, the thing we need to remember is the Bible was not written in English. You know, the Bible was written... Uh, over a period of 1,400 years and three different languages, uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And when the quill hit the sheepskin, that was the, the language the Holy Spirit inspired them to write in. So to a certain extent, every English translation is, has its limitations, right? Uh, because the Bible simply wasn't written in English. I think what we want to strive for in choosing an English translation is one that uh, has the greatest fidelity to the original text, uh, practices what's called formal equivalency, meaning trying as best we can to go word for word, um, and then a one that uh, you know is based on the superior manuscripts. Now I'm not sure where Andy comes down on this, and he's more uh, obviously more of a New Testament scholar uh, than than I am. That was your wasn't your degree in in New Testament? Or was it Bible X? Your PhD? It was it was in Bible. Okay. So, um, so still, uh, you're, in general, I, I pretty much go under the impression that you're a more preeminent scholar than me, regardless of field. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, I'm a majority text advocate. I believe that in most cases that, that probably best represents the original manuscripts. And so, therefore, I do favor the New King James. Um, the King James is, is based on a, a manuscript form uh, often called the Textus Receptus, which was Erasmus's, uh, eventually Erasmus's kind of uh, uh, combination of texts that he put together. I think it was his fifth version 
of his New Testament manuscript that eventually became called the Textus Receptus. Uh, and there are places in that manuscript there where we have no other examples of that particular wording anywhere in the thousands of manuscripts that we have in in present today, which can only mean one thing: that Erasmus in the you know 1500s or so made that up. Uh, it's not attested anywhere else. So there are some limitations to the King James. I respect it. I think uh, in many cases, uh, obviously the Lord used it as an English translation for hundreds of years. But for those who think the King James English translation, the authorized version of 1611, is the only inspired version and that somehow God inspired the translators that King James solicited to come up with that version, uh, that's that's ridiculous. That's certainly not the case. And uh, for the for that extreme of King James only folks, I would I would differ with them. Yeah. So, um, so you agree that anyone, uh, not only saved people, read the King James then. Of course not. No. In fact, who was the guy, Andy, you may remember that out of Florida that was a King James only guy, a TR guy, and he. He actually said, if you got sick, uh, yeah, I think that's who it was, Samuel Gipp. I yeah. think he's the one that said, if you got saved using any other version, you're not really saved, <laughs> which of course is, is ridiculous. Um, I mean, if people read a Spanish Bible or a Russian Bible or a you know Hindu Bible, I mean, so the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So uh, yeah, I really have little respect for them. That's a very legalistic, naive, uh, frankly, ignorant approach. Um, you know, um, so yeah, I would disagree with that. All right, and what about the Amplified Bible? And I just want to say one thing: I don't uh, ever read the Message and the Passion. I wouldn't even open that with a ten-foot pole. But the Amplified Bible, me personally, there are some times where I want to amplify the text. Um, but there are some passages within the Amplified Bible that are really bad. So what do you what do you think? Of the well, Amplified? there are there are passages in every English Bible that I feel are in, inaccurately translated. The New American Standard, for example, in James 2.14 says, can that faith save him, inserting the pronoun that, uh, when the text just says, can faith save him. Uh, there are a lot of places where they, the modern translations appeal to the progressive present tense of the Greek verb, which I th is, is widely discredited as a, a use of the verb. So, um, you know, I, I, I try not to speak in absolutes. I understand your concern about Eugene Peterson and the message, for example, and some of those. Um, I certainly don't promote them or don't recommend that people study from them. You need a formal equivalent. And what do we mean by formal equivalent? Let me explain uh, that in case your listeners, if that's a term that they may not be familiar with. Some Bibles in English are more paraphrastic. They kind of paraphrase and tell you what it means. Some are more rigid and try to be word for word. An example would be in Hebrew, the context, the, the concept of anger is used, is expressed through a Hebrew idiom of the nostrils flaring or the nostrils enlarging, something like that. And so the Hebrew text might say the king's nostrils flared or something. Well, what it means is the king grew angry. And so when a modern English translation translates it, the king grew angry, that's technically correct in terms of meaning. But when I'm studying the word of God, what I want to know is what does it say so that I can then employ proper rules of Bible study methods to determine what it means. I don't want to short-circuit the process by having somebody tell me what it means because sometimes they're wrong. Uh, they're frequently wrong. So uh, that's what we mean by formal equipment. We want the equivalent. We want a translation that 
tries to go word for word, and then we will use just good cultural study tools, language tools, grammar and syntax tools, and, 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 and it's pretty simple to understand uh, what it means. Um, so I have been known to quote, uh, maybe not by name, but quote from the message, the same way I might quote from a commentary, or maybe in one of uh, Dr. Wood's books, he might express something that I think really captures the essence of what a particular passage is communicating, and I'll say, as one scholar put it, and then I'll quote it. So I think sometimes Eugene Peterson, uh, you know, has a good paraphrase of what a passage is saying. I mean, even a, a blind squirrel gets a nut every now and then, so, I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due. Correct. And then finally they asked, uh, do you recommend any versions? Any versions that maybe either of you are your go-tos? I know the NASB, but any other versions? Well, for my personal preference, uh, since I'm a majority text advocate and a formal equivalent advocate, that only leaves one option, which is the New King James. But mm -hmm. I do think NASB is formal equivalent. Um, I do not recommend the ESV because it... Uh, the, the scholars that translated it and wrote the notes to the ESV study Bible are highly Calvinistic and coming from a highly reformed approach to soteriology. In fact, it's often tongue-in-cheek called the elect study Bible because it, it's so it's so it's so saturated with reformed theology. And that's a very popular one today because Calvinism is kind of gaining a lot of steam. So I don't recommend that. But yeah, New King James, NASB, King James can be fine. Uh, it just is going to have a little more archaic words that you may have to look up. Uh, but those are some of the ones I recommend. All right. Uh, Dr. Andy, anything to add? No, I agree with everything you said. Um, if you want to drill down on the King James only issue, um, there was a debate with Dan Wallace and Samuel Gibb and mm. all those guys on the John Inkerberg show a number of years ago, you know, and you could drag that up somewhere probably on YouTube and watch that. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, word-for-word uh, -word translation versus, what are they calling it today, dynamic? Dynamic equivalence, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a wonderful article by Robert, the late Robert Thomas in Evangelical Hermeneutics, the new versus the old. And so if, if you want to understand why we don't support more paraphrastic understandings, translations of the Bible, that would be a good article to look at also. I will definitely put that in the editing uh, so and also in the show notes as well. I uh, appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Question number two um, is: I it should it may be again I tweak these, so I don't know if you have the same numbers, but it may be question eleven on your end. I have heard some pastors say the C represents humanity in the Bible, but in Revelation it says no more C. Does that mean there will be no sharks, fish, dolphins? I personally meet Kim. I added orca because that is my favorite. <laughs> take a shot at that one um, you know it is true that sometimes the sea in the Bible is symbolic and to arrive at that conclusion you just look at the context so for example the sea represents humanity in Isaiah 57 verse 20 uh, you'll see the harlot sitting on many waters which is humanity Revelation 17 verse 1 
and verse 15, and when the beast, Revelation 13, 1, comes out of the sea, you know, I take it as he's arising out of the mass Gentile population. So it is true, you know, based on the context, that sea can be a symbol. However, in Revelation 21, verse 1, uh, all John says there is, I saw no more sea. And so I take it that it's literal there. Um, and I think it's described that way for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's trying to uh, demarcate that new world from Eden. You know, there's some really interesting parallels between Revelation 21 and 22 and Genesis 1 and 2. A lot of parallels, but there's a lot of dissimilarities. For example, there's no tree of knowledge in the eternal state, but there was one in Eden. And interestingly enough, and I don't understand how it's all going to work, but there's not going to be any sea in the eternal state. And I think those kinds of things are there to show us that the world that we're moving into is not going to be probationary. Eden, man was on probation. Um, the opportunity to sin had to have been presented to him. And man, of course, took the wrong choice, and God entered into history through Jesus Christ and paid the penalty, you know, to restore what was broken. So the story of the Bible is from the garden to a city, you know, with a cross in between. And man is on probation in Genesis 1 and 2, but he's no longer on probation in Revelation 21 and 22. And that's why that world, I think, looks so different from the, you know, the Edenic world. And I think it also says no more sea understood literally because it's trying to delineate that time period from the millennium, which precedes the eternal state. So in the millennial kingdom, which is the thousand years, you know, beforehand, there is going to be sea. In fact, the Dead Sea is mentioned in Ezekiel 47, verses 10 and 11, and the Euphrates and the Tigris, Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21 know, flowing out of the Persian Gulf, etc. So there's clearly sea in the Millennial Kingdom, but there won't be sea in the eternal state, because the eternal state, my understanding of it, is it's not a renovation of the existing world. Amen. It's an ex nihilo, brand new creation entirely. So I'm of the persuasion that Revelation 21 verse 1, no more sea, is very literal, and I don't know if I understand it all, but there's some theological reasons for that. So hopefully, maybe then during the millennial reign, I can actually swim with whales, <laughs> and my my bucket list will come true. Uh, J uh, JB, anything to add? No, that was an excellent uh, analogy uh, with the probation there, uh, spoken like a good good attorney, actually. Uh, although that's somewhat of an oxymoron, I suppose. Good, but anyway. Sure. Um, um, I, do, I will say I stumbled a little bit over your question because there was a typo in the original copy you sent me and it talked about okra. And I thought, man, why would you want to swim with okra? But uh, then I realized you were talking about orca. So, yeah, the only thing I would add from a theological perspective is, again, since, since we're coming full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state with the noted distinctions that uh, Dr. Woods kind of talked about, um, you know, I'm wondering if, I've often heard, especially in re relation to Revelation 21, that sea represents evil and post-flood presence, whereas in the pre-fall Eden, you know, there wasn't sea. Um, you think there's anything to that? 
Well, yeah, I think that's that's it's a uh, you know this isn't something to start a new church over. You know, <laughs> or the first church of the No Sea and the Eternal Sea Church. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, mean, I understand it, their argument. I personally don't go there, but I mean, I, it's you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting that you bring this up because I one of the first Bible studies I taught. Uh, was in my house, in my parents' house actually, and I had this friend that literally came. I grew up in Southern California. You know, he came literally with his wetsuit on, you know, from the beach <laughs> to the Bible study. He had sand all over him. And we would just say, Ron, just just go in the shower if you if you don't mind and get the sand off yet before you come in. So he came into the Bible study and I was teaching this and no more sea and I could see the disappointment huh. on it. Because surfing was such a big part of his yeah. life. I just said, you know, Ron, um, I guarantee you, you know, you're not going to be disappointed when you get there. Like, however it's going to turn out, you're not going to be disappointed. And, you know, maybe God has will have some different things for us, but whatever is removed will be replaced with something much, much better. So yeah. that's always stood out in my mind, you know, with this question. Yeah, and I definitely uh, agree. It's it's literal. The context determines the meaning, and clearly, I think he was envisioning a eternal state without physical sea. I just think kind of the, the juxtaposition between the pre-fall Eden and the and the new heavens and the new earth kind of makes me wonder if if we're going back because there was no need for a sea prior to, to that too. But that's definitely speculation. All right, all right. So the next. Uh really good question um this person asked that this may be number 14 on yours if america is not in the bible why should we care about this nation in these last days wow that's a great question i know andy has a lot he would like to say about that let me just let me just give you my two cents worth um i am of the opinion that we in America have, uh, we suffer from American exceptionalism, especially Christians. We tend to see the Bible through the lens of America first, rather than just letting it speak for itself. And I'll never forget a friend of mine that I've spoken at a lot of conferences with, uh, Ed Heinsen, told the story one time, and he travels internationally to speak on Bible prophecy in the end times. I, I travel just within the United States, although I've done some international, but that's not my, my focus. And he says wherever he goes in the world, they never ask, you know, when he's in, say, Costa Rica, where's Costa Rica in the Bible or in Canada? Where's Canada in the Bible or where's Brazil in the Bible? Only in America does he get that question. And he said it's almost always the first question that people ask during a Q&A at a prophecy conference. Where's America in the Bible? And I think that's very telling. Um, so, you know, I would say in answer to the question, why should we care about America? We should care about America because America is made up of people and we should care about people and their eternal destiny. And that's our job as the church in this present age is to spread the gospel and, and be a light in this perverse generation, Paul calls it. Um, I, I don't think we should write off America. The, the rapid decline of our country right now into utter chaos and, and, and socialistic lawlessness and all that it affects us. It's, if, if the Lord tarries is coming, it's going to affect my children and my grandchildren. Um, and I look at my little granddaughter, who's almost two now, and I wonder what life's going to be like if the Lord doesn't come back soon. It's just things are happening at warp speed. Um, no pun intended. Um, but uh, so I would say America matters because it's the culture in which we live. God cares about all people. It doesn't matter 
any more than any other country matters, but uh, we should, as long as we're still in this earth, we should stand up for truth, stand up for liberty. We should fight to uh, elect God-fearing uh, you know, individuals who are going to have a biblical worldview. Uh, so I just, I guess the premise of the question uh, irks me a little bit because it sort of implies since we don't see a direct reference to this geographic region in the Bible as it relates to the end times, we should just write it off. And maybe that's not what the person was thinking, but those are some of my thoughts. But I know this is kind of right in Andy's wheelhouse. Well, you know, Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, you know, said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You know, he didn't, he didn't add the clause as long as America is in existence. So, you know, the Lord did really well before America existed, and after America goes out for whatever reason, because we don't see America in the pages of Bible prophecy, um, at least directly, um, God's going to do pretty well, and He's going to, you know, He's going to be at work no matter with America or without America. For whatever reason, America has been unusually blessed with a Christian foundation. Uh, not a perfect foundation, but I don't know of any country that's had as much Judeo-Christian influence on it as the United States of America. And most of the missionaries uh, of recent days, you know, have gone into the world from the United States. And so maybe that's why people ask questions like that. Um, but God doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need the United States. And if we should ever find ourselves in a circumstance where America is just sort of absorbed into the new world order and becomes a non-player, uh, God, Jesus is still going to keep his promise that he's going to build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I mean, I think we should care about America because to me it's a stewardship issue. Um, for whatever reason, God has seen fit to put me in this nation at this particular time in history. So I have certain freedoms that most people in world history have never had. And I think at the Bama seat, I'm going to be asked, all of us are going to be asked, what do we do with those freedoms? Um, so we've all been given time, talent, and treasure where we manage things for God. And we live in a country where we have freedom, at least to some extent. And maybe that's disappearing, you know, but uh, I think we're going to be asked, what do we do with the stewardship we have been given? But that would be the reason why I care about it. But you know, we don't want to give people the impression that God somehow is not going to work if America disappears. Amen. Agreed. I do. Uh, what were you going to say, JP? I just said amen. Yeah, I um, I have a friend of mine um, who I engage with a lot on Facebook. Um, and this actually came from this question, believe it or not. It came from a very odd email. Um, I don't know if it's him or not, but I find that funny. But anyway... Um, he is, I don't want to say a hater against America, but he's really turned a blind eye to America. He's just so rapture-minded, right? You know the saying, you're so heavenly-minded that you know earthly good. And I think that, um, like, he thinks that God's judgment is on America. There's just a lot of things. And we always try to have, you know, when we talk, we have that dialogue that I personally do not believe um, things that come upon this nation are, are, is, you know, are God's judgments upon us. Um, I think his hand is still very much on America. You know, if you think of all the countries that have come into existence, 
um, been formed, none of them have been formed based upon the Ten Commandments and God. And I think that speaks volumes for this nation. And I don't know. I mean, I personally agree with both of uh, y'all. I, I would never um, stop speaking and loving, not in you know that kind of a way, this nation. I, I think that America, you nailed it. Um, Andy, when you said that, you know, we're blessed to be here. I could have been in any other country, and God chose to keep me right here in America. And for that, I am literally eternally grateful. So, but uh, a great question. I mean, honestly, that was really good. When I seen that come through, I'm like, oh. Yeah, and I would, if I could periodically kind of mention some resources, both from Not By Works and Andy, that might be relevant. Um, by the way, Andy, I don't know if you noticed, if you look over my left shoulder, there are a couple books there on the shelf that, might be of interest to you. Um, But uh, I actually sold a couple of those this past weekend in Nebraska. I spoke at a conference and I brought some of them. And so, yeah. Um, But one resource uh, at the Not By Works website, uh, and by the way, we've brought everything internal now to our website because YouTube has, is, has already banned five of my videos. They've given me two strikes and three warnings, and it's just a matter of time before I'm banished entirely. So we've, we've gotten away from YouTube. The channel's still there for now. It, any day it's going to be banned because they're going back and looking at like videos I did seven months ago and, and banning them. So uh, because of that, you know, we brought everything in-house. So if you just go to notbyworks.org and click on videos, there's one there that I did called Red, White, and Bad, When the Country We Love Becomes the Country We Fear. And I think we are going through a transformation in our country, which is very sad for uh, us patriots to see. It doesn't mean we give up or throw in the towel, uh, but it's a, it's, it would be a kind of an eye-opener, I think, for some people uh, if you've never really looked into that issue. It's called Red, White, and Bad. I'll definitely put the link um, in the show notes for sure. Do you guys want to add anything else, or shall I move on to our uh, next question? Okay. So this right here, I combine the two only because it's kind of like on the same platform. These are kind of down um, towards the end of the questions that I sent you. So it says, why do some Christians listen and agree with false teachers all the time? If they are saved, would they not stop? And then kind of like on the same uh, lines there, it says, should I listen to Bethel music and other artists known to be part of what you, meaning me, and others say are false churches who do not preach a right gospel. So how would you, um, Christians who listen to false teachers and are some of these false church music people good in your church for worship music? Well, I'll do the, I'll take a shot. Um, you know, why do Christians listen to false teachers? I mean, why is it that I make a decision to not eat healthy sometimes, and I go to McDonald's. Uh, just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I don't make bad decisions sometimes. And because I go to McDonald's because it feels better going down. You know, <laughs> I like the Big Mac and all that, all that stuff. And it's better, it's better tasting at the time than the healthy stuff. So I think the thing to understand is just because you get saved doesn't mean your sin nature disappears. You know that won't happen till glorification. Romans 13, verse 14, Galatians 5, verse 17, indicates that we still have a sin nature. I don't have to yield to it as a slave, but it's still there to pander to. And, you know, frankly, it's more enjoyable to listen to an ear tickler 
sometimes than it is someone that wants to give me healthy stuff. And um, so I'm not I'm not of the persuasion that if you're listening to a bad teacher, you know, you're not a Christian. Um, I just think you're making bad. You're not eating right. In other words, you're not doing what First Peter two verse two says. You know, as newborn babes crave the pure milk of the word. You know, we don't strive for purity many times because it doesn't doesn't feel as good. Um, the other part of the question about Bethel music, um, I wish I understood music better, but I've you know listened to a lot of people that have told me all of the bad stuff connected with Bethel Church, and so therefore, you know, the verse that comes to my mind is "Don't be unequally yoked." Uh, with unbelievers. In other words, if the church producing all of this stuff has a lot of problems, doctrinally, theologically, I can't, it's kind of naive to say that won't influence their music. And so if a ministry wants to play Bethel music or have their congregation sing according to Bethel music, I mean, to me, it's a unequally yoked issue. And I would advise <clears throat> Yeah, I, I would add a couple of things on the first point. Um, Boy, Andy, you really hit it, said it well. Um, the fact of the matter is Christians sin. And there is no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a Christian might not also commit if he's walking in the flesh. In fact, that passage that he referred to in Galatians, if you read through the rest of that passage and get down to verse 25, Paul plainly says that since we are alive spiritually, meaning born again, we should walk in the Spirit. And he wouldn't say that if it weren't possible to not walk in the Spirit. And so there's this struggle that goes on. And it really is important that we resist the very popular uh, temptation to judge other people's salvation based upon their behavior. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who's living in abject sinful life is automatically saved. They may not be. But if they're not saved, it's because they've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It has nothing to do with their behavior. Uh, there's an incipient pride that sort of undergirds that thinking where we would look at someone who's struggling with the so-called big sins or the visible sins, drugs, sex, alcohol, living what we might call you know, a blatantly sinful life, and hastily say, well, there's no way they can be a Christian. Yet all the while, we know in our own heart that we're struggling with the same sins we've struggled with our entire Christian life. It might be jealousy or lust or anger or contentiousness or, you know, uh, j j you know whatever. So um, our works, and that's the, that's the foundation for our ministry of 22 years now, our works have no bearing on our eternal destiny. As a believer, our righteousness should reflect our positional righteousness in Christ. That's the goal. But it's not only biblically clear, but self-evident that our practical righteousness does not always reflect our positional righteousness in Christ. And, and it won't until we get to heaven. Uh, so well said, Andy. And then as far as the music issue, I deal with that a lot. I'm sure Andy does too as a pastor. Um, it's a really tough world in which we live. I, I've sort of adopted the don't ask, don't tell approach. You know, um, if I dove into the backgrounds and personal practices of every songwriter out there, I probably wouldn't sing anything, frankly. Um, but there are certain songwriters and popular musicians that um, have so crossed a line, uh, say, for example, Hillsong, 
which are basically Satan worshipers, if you've been keeping up with what's going on in their church. Um, I mean, no, I say that not, not to, I say in, in all seriousness. I mean, you look at some of the stuff that goes on in that church, the symbolism, the songs, the chants, the, that's right out of a Luciferian playbook. So at that point, even though I, some of their songs through the years I have stylistically and preferentially resonated with, there, I, there's nothing inherently unbiblical doctrinally about a particular song but boy now that i know what they're all about i just can't bring myself to sing their stuff and i've instructed our worship team to not use any hillsong stuff and frankly the same thing would probably go with bethel but in general i think it's our task to make sure the songs that we sing are not overtly teaching doctrinal error and even some of the old hymns do that you know, when we when we sing uh, "Victory in Jesus" at our church, which we do sometimes, uh, we change the word. You know, we say, "Then I believed in Jesus Christ and won the victory," instead of "I repented of my sin," because the Bible never says "repent of your sin to go to heaven." Um, so uh, I think it's a tough issue, and I respect those that maybe take a harder stance against contemporary music than than I do. But in general, I sort of don't ask, don't tell. But once I'm told, then I try to deal with that issue in, in that moment. Right. Um, actually, I was not going to answer. Uh, sorry, I was not going to ask these questions um, until a little bit later. But you kind of already spoke about it, so I don't think they'll be as weighty now. Um, so I'm going to merge the two. How was one born again? This person says, I mean, I believe in Jesus. Most do. But how do I know if I'm saved? And then the second part of this question um, says, well, different question. I've heard that I'm wrong for being a Catholic. Catholics are Christians. Can you help me understand why what I believe may be wrong? So I feel like that was an amazing segue because you mentioned some pivotal things. So I'm just going to segue into those now. Uh, how are you born again? I think Dr. Hickson has a paper on his website floating around somewhere where he's got all 160 references, you know, that you're saved through a single condition, faith alone and Christ alone, period. Um, the question of how do you know you're saved relates to the assurance of salvation. And the prime, the, the basic reason you know you're saved is, is, is has nothing to do with subjectivity. It has to do with the objective promise of God who cannot lie, who tells you, that at the point of faith alone, in Christ alone, you have been transferred from death unto life. And so, you know, John 5, verse 24, 1 John 5, verse 13, um, that's how you live your life as a Christian. Now, when I got saved, um, I had no desire for the Bible, and suddenly I had a desire to read it. Now, what, what, what do you, where do you factor that in? Well, Lewis Berry Chafer called those secondary evidences. So you can experience some sub, sub, some sub, uh, subjective secondary evidences like that, change of desires, but that's not the primary objective evidence that guarantees your salvation. I mean, you know you're saved because of the objective truth of God's Word. And so it's kind of troubling to me to watch so many Christians answer that question just with the subjective Right. Oh, you've got to change because you know that can that can ebb and flow. 
So one day you're saved, I guess. One day you don't have assurance of salvation. So it's sort of like in a, as a pilot knows when you're flying, you keep your eye on the compass because your feelings can deceive you. I've talked to pilots and they've felt like the plane is upside down, but they don't change the flight pattern because the compass says otherwise. And so don't live your life through subjective experiences. I think those can be of God, but they're not the primary object of reason that we know that we're saved. And, uh, and God can't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6, verse 18, etc. The Catholic part of it is the whole Reformation in the 16th century was fought over one word. It was the word sola, which is Latin for alone. If the reformers had not insisted on that word sola, they could have gotten along hunky-dory with Roman Catholicism. But they didn't uh, capitulate. They insisted on that word. And that word sola is the difference between Protestant biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Sola fide, faith alone. Roman Catholics merge faith and works for justification, so they don't believe in that sola. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Roman Catholics think that they can get to God through other channels, like Mary, so they deny that one. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And here's a big one, sola scriptura, scripture alone. And you have to understand that they added a bunch of books to fight Luther. You know, Luther kept insisting that Galatians says salvation by faith alone. It's in the Bible. And they said, well, we got some biblical books, too. And they added the Apocrypha, you know, the Maccabees books and all of these other kinds of things, which you can find verses there that, that uh, support Roman Catholicism. And so they added those really late in the game. I think at the Council of Trent, they added those long after the apostles, you know, had been dead for 1,500 years or more. And that is a big difference between us and Catholics. It's sola scriptura. And that's why when you're talking to your Catholic friends, they come to different conclusions than you because they're operating out of a different base of authority. We're operating out of the 66 biblical books, period. They're operating out of scripture plus apocrypha added 1,500 years late. And they're also operating out of ex cathedra, which means from the chair, where they believe the Pope uh, is just like, you know, is in Peter's succession. So the, when the Pope speaks, he speaks scripture. So um, that's the reason we're not Roman Catholic. It's because of that word sola, you know, in those five areas. Yeah, <clears throat> I would say... Back, excellent comment there on Roman Catholicism. Agree completely. Uh, going back to the first question, um, to be very, very specific, uh, how does one become born again? How does one become a Christian? <clears throat> As Andy said, more than 160 times, the New Testament alone conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, not by works, not anything we do, but at the moment faith meets the right object, which is Jesus Christ who died and rose again to pay our personal penalty for sin. When we place our faith in Him and Him alone, at that instant, at that punctiliar moment in time, as Jesus said, we pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. We are born again. 
And you mentioned Lewis Berry Chafer. Chafer mentions 33 things that happen instantaneously at the moment we place our faith in Christ. So that's how someone becomes born again. It's not by walking an aisle, signing a card, joining a church, being baptized, doing good works, trying to measure up. It's a matter of faith. And I have those uh, verses all listed in an appendix at the back of Getting the Gospel Wrong, or I'll send you the document if you email me, anybody. But uh, it's very important that we understand that eternal life is a present possession that we get at the moment of faith. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give you eternal life when you believe in me. He didn't say I give you the possibility for eternal life or the prospect of eternal life or the potential for eternal life. We give, get eternal life. We don't get eternal life when we die. We get eternal life when we believe the gospel. And therefore, as Andy said, since God cannot lie, our assurance is really the birthright of every believer. I believe it's a sin to doubt your salvation. I believe it is. I believe it's like shaking your fist at heaven and saying, God, I know you said you gave me eternal life when I trusted in you, but I don't really think you meant it. So I don't think we should doubt. Now, you know, Calvinists teach that doubt is healthy. You should constantly wake up every day and look at your life and see if you measure up and are you really saved because they teach this false notion of a spurious faith, which is not biblical. But nowhere does the Bible ever call us to look at the uh, subjective actions of our life as a measuring stick for whether or not we're going to heaven. It calls us to look at the empirical promise of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who said, whoever believes in me has, present tense, everlasting life. Agreed. So let me just play devil's advocate here um, to help someone understand. I 100% agree with all of that. I, without question, believe through faith alone. Um, however, the Bible is clear that there's wheat and tares. So how do you explain that then? If there's fake Christians, then how? Like, yeah. You see my point? Like, yeah, there are there are people. It, it all comes down. It all comes down to one thing, Kim. Have you trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation? There are those who haven't, and there are those who have. You can bring any person on the in the world to me. All 7.5 billion. You can choose any person, and on the authority of Scripture, I can guarantee you one of two things is true about that person. Either they're a believer or they're not. That's the only two options. If they've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation, they're a born-again believer. If they have not, or if they're trusting in something else, the Catholic Church, their own works, their religion, their heritage, you know, they are not saved. So, of course, there are false professors. I believe there are many people who think they're Christians, but they've believed a false gospel. Um, and uh, that's sad. And the devil, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is, is, tells us is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. Paul said it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation for whoever believes it. So if people haven't heard the gospel or they've heard a false gospel, you know, they're not going to be able to be saved. We, that's why we have to preach the gospel. But uh, I don't see that as playing devil's advocate. I see that as just stating a reality, which is that, yeah, the, the churches, in fact, have people in them that aren't saved. The world has people in it that aren't saved. But it's not based on their works, because again, don't forget what I said. There's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he or she is catering to the flesh. So uh, the issue comes down to have you trusted Christ. Yeah, and real, real quick, uh, uh, Kim, you know that, that passage, uh, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, I prophesy in your name, etc., and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. That probably has to be one of the most mangled passages that's presented today because 
the Reformed theologian or the Calvinists and Arminians to some extent uh, use that to teach the doctrine that Dr. Hickson mentioned a few moments ago, spurious faith. So they think there's the faith that saves and the faith that doesn't save. And the faith that saves is the faith that you get from God as a gift because you're one of the elect, you know, according to their doctrine. But that particular passage, Matthew 7, when you correlate it with Matthew 12, it's not dealing with spurious faith. There is no such thing as spurious faith. Either you believe or you don't. I mean, I when I fly, I've got to get on the plane. Now, I might be nervous about the pilot, you know, but I either had the confidence to get on the plane or I didn't. It doesn't matter if I've got sweaty palms, you know, the whole flight. So you either trust Christ for salvation, you know, or you don't. And what's going on in Matthew 7 is, if you look at it carefully, they're pleading their works of righteousness as a basis for their justification. And that's why they're rejected in the end by God. It's, it's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees looked very saved. Uh, Judas, for the most part, looked very saved. Um, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all, all the apostles said, well, is it me? Is it me? They didn't say it's got to be Judas because the Pharisees and Judas they looked the part but the problem is they were trusting in their own works of righteousness and they never trusted in Christ alone for salvation so that's the distinction between the sheep and the goats it's not a distinction between people that have the gift of faith or the authentic faith versus the spurious faith do we have time do we have time to elaborate on that passage in Matthew a little bit further? It's I think it's I think it's really important. Um, you know that it comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven, and throughout that passage, Jesus is basically indicting these self-righteous, pious Jewish leaders for for thinking that they've dotted all their eyes and crossed all their t's. And if you remember, he he begins to explain to them. Look, you know, you may think you've got you're in great shape because you never murdered, but let me ask you, have you hated? You may think, you know, good for me, I've never committed adultery, but have you lusted? And then he gets up to the point in Matthew five where he says, frankly, if you want to get into heaven, the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be perfect. And what he was saying is that it's faith righteousness that is required, not fake righteousness or self righteousness. And so, as Doctor Wood said at the end, he kind of comes right out with it and says not everyone who says Lord Lord because it's about who you know but then in the very next chapter Matthew who under the inspiration of spirit put this these selected events from Christ in in an order for to make a point what do we read in Matthew 8 we read Jesus interaction with a Gentile you know a dirty rotten filthy Gentile a centurion and Jesus commends his faith and says I've not seen such great faith not even in Israel. And then he says, I tell you the truth, everyone will come from the east and the west, meaning Gentiles, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, I mean, that would have really made a point and stung those, you know, self-righteous scribes and Pharisees because, you know, he's basically commending someone who outwardly, you know, had no, you know, had no, you know, what people today would call evidence, but he's saying it's not what you do, it's what's in your heart. And, you know, assurance is so vital, which was the essence of this question we started with. Uh, I believe that, you know, lack of assurance cripples people who live their lives in this cyclical process of trying to somehow prove to themselves and others that they're saved. 
you know, Andy used a flying illustration. The illustration I like to use about objective versus subjective uh, assurance is, you know, when you go to the to the refrigerator and you pull out that, you know, I don't know what it would be, say an old uh, Tupperware thing full of food or maybe some store-bought thing of uh, soup, and you can't remember how long it's been in there. So the first thing you do is you look at the expiration date, right? And you look at the outside and you say, is this, is this good or is it no good? But, you know, that's really not the definitive test because we've all looked at dishes that have an expiration date yet in the future. But, boy, you open that lid and you see what's on the inside and it stinks to high heaven. And you know then for sure, you know, this thing isn't good. Well, it's the same thing with our salvation. It's what's on the inside that matters. There might be external subjective things that might make you wonder, but that none of that matters because it's not what we do that saves us, it's who we know. And so we want to always hang on to the promise of Jesus Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And you know, um, and I'll make it quick because we have a few more questions here. So that was my premise in starting Life Clips. I know it's kind of morphed into something different, but Christians struggle. There's Christians who I believe are alcoholics, they're addicted to pornography, um, they have, you know, lust, they have anxiety, they have anger. So when Life Clips started, that's the, the church, unlike the two of you here, but the church in general, they, they don't want to speak upon that. They think that everyone needs to be this perfect little religious person, and that's not the case. And for instance, when I was backslidden for many years, but even when I came back and I knew that God was like, okay, he finally got my attention, right? And so I had to really change my mind, my thinking, so when I mean repent, I there's no repentance of sins that would just take me forever and I'd forget some and then I'd go to hell. Um, sorry, that repenting of sins really vexes me. But anyway, so when I, I really started diving into the Bible, I started praying more. My first year, even walking with the Lord, going to church, doing those outwardly things, I still struggled that entire first year with pornography. It was such a, a thing that I just could not get out of. I mean, I was still in bondage with pornography. So if anyone's looking at me, they're going to be like, Kim, are you really saved? Well, yeah, I might not watch it every day now, but I'm still maybe once or I used to go to Dirty Bingo still on Tuesdays, if that tells you. I still <laughs> wasn't growing. So to the outward person, I am, to them, I'm not saved. But I never, and when I mean never, I never questioned my salvation, ever. You know what I mean? I just, when I was backslidden, I never would profess to be a believer because the spirit inside of me would, I, I knew, like, I, I can't you know, say that, but anyway, so no, I, I get, and I'm glad someone asked that question, because hear me and hear me well, family, works will wear you out, if you are trying, that's religion, is us trying to get to God, that's what I do when I witness to people who are Catholics or Muslims, or they have a form of religion, it is, it is taxing, and it is tiresome, I would rather have a relationship with a God who knows me intimately, who knows my struggles, who knows that I am going to fail and fall daily. Not once a year, daily. I have to battle the flesh daily. And once we realize we're flesh and spirit, we're never going to get it. And we're just going to wear ourselves out. We're going to get anxiety. We're going to get angry. We're going to get backslidden. We're going to think God's not there for us. Anyway, we can sit here for a while, as I'm, I'm sure you can, but that is a very passionate, passionate thing for me. And that is why I began that the Holy Spirit, I felt, led me into 
life clips was that's why it's a life clip we're not supposed to stay there but what's that duration right that's between you and god it can be a year five ten five minutes you know we all battle our flesh all of us and i want to find that perfect christian please because i, I don't know <laughs> i have a lot of perfect christian friends that i just want to walk in their shoes for one day because wow how do you have that utopia in life i just i don't so anyway yeah. Well, if I could just add something, you know, some people will enter heaven ha having had no victory over their flesh. They will actually enter heaven in a state of practical rebellion. I'm not promoting that mm -hmm. and saying that's good, but Paul opens the door to that in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15. And that's why all believers will be in heaven, but some will be more rewarded at the Bema Seat judgment than others because of issues like this. Yeah, in 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul says, uh, even if we're faithless, and, and literally the Greek word there is apistis, meaning no faith, uh, he's faithful because he cannot deny himself. Again, we're part of the family of God. It's on the inside. And then also we could use the example of John the Baptist, who died in a lonely prison cell questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, he died in unbelief, yet he's in heaven today. So. I do. All right, well, let's move ahead, and I hate to get off of that uh, question because it was amazing. So um, so this next question, I'm actually going to combine. It's your, uh, I think they're in order, or I might have just put it on my hand in order. But it's all regarding the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. So I did have one particular person um, on my page and then sent me an email. Uh, I think they're really confused regarding what the Holy Spirit is and the activity in one's life. So basically, some questions that, because uh, it's, it's coming from the same person. Why do some people say they pray in the Holy Spirit? And then the comment someone left me, which I have no idea what they mean. I couldn't even find a Bible verse to back it up. So first question, why do people pray in the Holy Spirit? Then the second question is, the Holy Spirit does nothing against our will. So if you guys can address that. And then the last two would be, does Jesus still baptize in the Holy Spirit, and do we still speak in tongues? And I'll repeat those if they're not all addressed. All right, well, how do you want to do this? I guess I'll, I guess I'll take a couple of them. Um, praying in the Spirit, there are, there are injunctions to pray in the Spirit. Ephesians 6, verse 18, Jude, verse 20, and... What I used to think that meant was I had to empty my mind and let God put thoughts in my head. So I would say, you know, Lord, I want to pray in the Spirit today. So the first thing that comes into my brain, you know, must be you putting it in my head to pray about via the Holy Spirit. And I was sort of mistakenly throwing in Romans 8, verse 26 into that, that the Spirit intercedes for us, you know, in groanings that words can't. You know, do, but I don't think that has anything to do with praying in the spirit. In hindsight, uh, that has more to do with Eastern mysticism. To me, praying in the spirit is praying according to the will of God. First John five verse fourteen says, "If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us." In other words, you, when you pray for things that are outside of God's will, James four. Two and three, right in there, tells us we ask amiss. And so the, the better our prayer requests line up with God's will, the greater their chance of being answered. 
since God only, thank God, answers prayer requests that are within his will. And where do you find the, the will of God? You find the it in the, the word that the Holy Spirit authored, which is the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 21. So the better you understand the Bible, the better you know what the will of God is, and therefore the better you know how to pray. So that's my current understanding of praying in the Spirit. It's it's a prayer life that's informed by the written record of God, which the Holy Spirit inspired. Yeah, let me uh, before you move sure. on to the next one, let me just piggyback on that. I thought of Jude 20 as well, but what's interesting is the immediate context there, verse 19, talks about the distinction between those who have the Spirit and those who don't. And so I think you're right. To pray in the Spirit basically just means that because we have the Holy Spirit, you know, we need to pray according to his desires. Well, what are his desires? And, of course, remember the Spirit is a he, not an it. He's God, the third person of the Trinity. And so, you know, his will, as Andy said, you know, is revealed in the Word of God. And, you know, as we pray in the Spirit, we're praying, recognizing that God has a purpose and a plan, and we want to submit ourselves to that plan. Yeah. Um, concerning tongues... Um the first thing to understand is tongues is a lousy tra translation. And you have to understand, we talked about the King James Version earlier. The King James Version in Revelation 9, verse 11, I think is one of the first English translations to use the word tongue. And there it's referring in Revelation 9, around verse 11, to Hebrew, which is a known tongue. So in Elizabethan English, tongue meant a known language. And I think that's correct because that's what tongues means in the Greek. It's dialecto, where you get the word dialect, and glossolalia, where you get the word glossary, which reveal known, known things, known words, known language. So somehow the word tongue has taken on today kind of a mystical gibberish secret language and that's not what tongue means either in greek or in king james english um and so what was tongues it was what you see in acts 2 where peter gave his sermon on the day of pentecost and it was understandable in other known languages from people that didn't understand the language that peter was speaking and it was uh, it was a miracle and God uh, used that as a sign to usher in the new dispensation of the church. Um, as you go through the Bible, you'll discover that miracles have a tendency to cluster around new ages that God is introducing. And that's what's going on there in Acts 2. And consequently, tongues is actually a sign for the unbeliever. In that sense, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, and tongues relates to the signs of an apostle. There are signs that God was doing via the apostles to authenticate this new move of the Spirit, which was a change in dispensations. The church, uh, not the church, but God's program had been under the dispensation of the law for 1,500 years. And now there's a new program called the Church Age, and so tongues, the way I'm describing it, was, a, a, was an authenticating sign. And uh, Ephesians 2, verse 20 tells us that God built the church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so you lay a foundation one time. 
And so tongues was a gift at that point in time to authenticate this new dispensational change. And so I think tongues ceased after you get out of the apostolic age. I don't know how Dr. Hickson interprets it, but I still believe 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. I have a paper on it online if people are interested. It's called The Meaning of the Perfect in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. I believe that the perfect there is the completed canon of Scripture because it's neuter and it can't be describing Christ's second coming. And so the moment that the canon of Scripture was complete, tongues at that point ceased, and there would be no further need for them because the dispensational change had already happened. And so that's that's the known language that was being taught in Acts 2. As Peter was preaching, his message was discernible in the dialects of people that that didn't know the language Peter was speaking. They spoke their own language. It would be like if you just spoke Spanish and I just spoke English, suddenly I'd break out in perfect Spanish that you could understand. You would say, this is a miracle. And God allowed that to happen because there was a dispensational change. So the, the whole idea of tongues is very confusing today because people think it's some kind of private, mystical, spiritual babbling, which is not what the word means. More, that has more in common with Eastern mysticism than with biblical Christianity. Yeah, very well said. I, I can't add much, but I'll just add a couple of things. Uh, definitely the term in Greek is, is refers to the ability to speak in a known but unlearned language. It never refers to random syllabification or gibberish, never. Um, in fact, uh, and I completely agree with you on 1 Corinthians 13, it cannot refer to Christ. It has to refer to the, you know, I believe it refers to the Word of God, the neuter there, the completed completion of God's revelation. And 1 Corinthians 14.22, not only does it say that tongues are for a sign not to those who believe with them that believe not, but it's quoting, I believe, Isaiah. I didn't look it up, but and if you go back and look at the context, it's essentially more specifically a sign for unbelieving Jews that tongues in the first century were a means by which God validated this new program, this new dispensation to his chosen nation Israel. And indeed, if you look both in Acts and in Corinthians, every place tongues occurs, there were Jews present. So uh, that's I think I find that very interesting. So uh, and yes, uh, you know the perfect tense there is important that that tongues, uh, whether there be prophecies, they will cease and so forth. But tongues died out naturally as we had the completed canon and God had revealed everything we need for life and godliness in His self-revelation, the written word, and then historically. Uh, you know, uh, if you look through the annals of church history, you really, you don't see tongues much after the, you know, the second century there, early second century. And in fact, they really don't appear much at all in any historical record until the early 20th century in Azusa Street when there was this big, you know, emotional revival. And then that's kind of caught on with, you know, the first, second, and third waves of the charismatic movement. So I respect those who, you know, have a love for the Lord, they love Jesus, they've maybe been raised in a more charismatic environment where tongues to them meant something different. And I'm certainly not suggesting that anyone who speaks in tongues the way it has come to be defined, which is this random gibberish, is faking it or somehow demonically... I mean, I think 
people have emotional responses and they've been influenced by their culture and their surroundings. And so I just think we need to take them to the word and, sh- and help them redefine their experience. We always, you know, we always interpret experience in the light of scripture, not scripture in light of our experience. So, yeah, that's really all I would add about tongues. Mm-hmm. And uh, concerning the baptism of the Spirit, um, according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, that's something that's already happened to us. At the point of faith alone in Christ alone, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized, so it already happened, into one body, whether Jew or Greek, or, or Greek whether slaves, slaves or free, we were all, so it's something that happened to every Christian, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So the moment you place your personal faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit at that particular point in time does a miracle whereby he takes the lost sinner and he identifies, which is what the word baptism means. It's identification. Contextually, it's not speaking of water baptism here, but he identifies them with the body of Christ. And and consequently, you have at that point every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, verse 3. So therefore, you don't have to go on and sort of think that you're missing something and you need to sort of cry out to God, you know, for the additional 5% of the blessings he didn't, he didn't give you, allegedly. There is one strange case in Acts verses 13 through 17 where some Samaritans believed, and then they received the Holy Spirit at a later point after the Jerusalem saints came down to lay hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit after faith, and that's used to sometimes teach you got to go on and get baptized in the Spirit. But that's um, what we would call a transitional problem in the book of Acts. I recommend Dwight Pentecost's book called New Wine, where he goes into these kinds of issues in Acts. And that's really a one-time occurrence because it relates to the Samaritan-Jewish conflict. You know, we talk in our society about racial tension. Boy, they had it back then. For seven centuries, the Jews and the half-breed Samaritans hated each other. And if the Jerusalem saints hadn't come and laid hands on the Samaritan believers, you would have had two churches. (laughs) You would have had the Samaritan church and the Jewish church right out of the gate. And so that's the reason why the Spirit was delayed in Acts 8. But that is a non-normative experience today. Romans 8, verse 9 says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't have Christ. So the bottom line is once you trust Christ, you are automatically taken at that particular point in time, and you are identified with Christ's body, the church. It's not the universal church is what I'm speaking of. You don't even know what denomination you're going to be part of, maybe. But God has taken you and made you part of his body. And it's a done deal. You don't have to go on and seek some other experience yeah the book of acts obviously is is descriptive not prescriptive and so there are a lot of transitional issues in there i mean think about the disciples themselves on the day of pentecost i mean they were believers prior to the day of pentecost but they didn't get the holy spirit until that day and so now every believer the moment we trust Christ, trust Christ for salvation, we're baptized in the Spirit in that moment, identified with Christ. But back in the book of Acts, as this new church age was being rolled out, there were all these different transitions uh, taking place. 
Yeah, and a lot of people are trying to get back to the book of Acts, you know, Acts 29 and all this kind of stuff. I always like to ask them, well, do you own a house? Because you need to sell your house. And you probably need to go get stuck in the Mediterranean Sea also, like Paul was. But real quick, the, the last part of this question is the Holy Spirit. You know, can we exercise our will against the Holy Spirit? You know, there's a belief that both Dr. Hickson and I react against. It's the Calvinistic understanding where you're saved and you have no choice. You know, it's like cosmic rape almost. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the gift of faith. Regeneration precedes faith, they tell us. And you have the gift of faith because you're one of the elect and you have no role in salvation, no, no volition whatsoever. And that's really where I think that question comes from. And the thing to understand about it is God has designed us as image bearers of God. An image bearer of God, among other things, has free will. Amen. And that's why God has designed salvation in such a way that when I come under his conviction, I have to exercise free will concerning whether I'm going to trust Christ for salvation or not. And John 16, verses 7 through 11 says, When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. Sin because they don't believe. He will not believe for you. But Amen. he will convict you of your need to believe. And so we both reject a model of theology that is so heavy on sovereignty that it denies uh, volition. And Acts 7, verse 51, Stephen said to the Jews, you always resist the Holy Spirit, which indicates that it can happen. And even as a saved person with the Holy Spirit in me forever, I can, First Thessalonians 5, verse 19, quench the Spirit. I can, Ephesians 4, verse 30, grieve the Spirit. So when people are denying, using the Spirit to deny volition, whether it's initial salvation or the walk of sanctification, they've got a model that's not consistent with the totality of God's Word. They're totally focused on sovereignty to the point where they're ruling out the fact that we're image bearers and have free will. Amen. Yeah, we, we can't, you know, God does not force his love on anyone. He didn't force us to sin. We chose to sin of our own free will in the garden, and we have the option of choosing to receive the payment made on our behalf by faith in Christ. And so when they make faith the gift, they're confusing the gift with the means of receiving the gift, right? If I were to give you a physical gift, Andy, a, a present, my hands are the means, by, or your hands are the means by which you take that gift physically. In the spiritual realm, faith is like our hands. It's how we receive the gift paid for by the blood of Christ. And you don't receive a gift with a gift. It just it's a category confusion. So uh, they believe, Calvinists believe that you know faith is the involuntary compulsory response to regeneration. You couldn't not believe if you're elect, if you wanted to, and you could, if you're not elect, you couldn't believe if you wanted to. They think faith is the involuntary compulsory response to regeneration. It is not. Faith is the instrumental cause of regeneration. And again, there's one condition mentioned more than 160 times in the New Testament alone for receiving eternal life, and that's faith. We have the choice. We can believe the gospel or we can reject it. And as you go through John's gospel, um, it, it says it over and over again, you believe, and then as a result, you're regenerated. It never puts the cart before the horse. You know, it's interesting, one thing that 
I learned recently is that word regeneration, Pauline Genesia, I think is how you say it. It's only used a couple of times in the Bible, once in Titus, and then again concerning the kingdom, where it says that the restoration of all things. And so this idea that you're regenerated first and then you believe and then Christ then you believe second it's kind of uh, when you think about it and you understand that Paul and Genesia can refer to the kingdom it's kind of post-millennial when you think about it because the proper order is Christ comes in first uh, you believe and then your your body is filled with the, the Holy the, your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit it's not the other way around any more than the kingdom comes first and Amen. then Jesus shows up later. <laughs> Amen. Uh, and I, I kind of found that. I don't know if you've ever thought about it from that way. I, I had not. Uh, yeah, fascinating. Me, yeah, it's very interesting. So I want to know, because um, we have four questions, and they're all really amazing that are left. Can you guys give me another 15, and hopefully we can bang all this out? I can, yeah. Sure. Yeah? Okay. So um, I want to save really the mark of the beast, the vaccine, and then also the rapture kind of for the last two, because I know those are going to be really weighty. So um, this question actually, uh, Andy, after we did our kingdom now, I had an email and I thought you had addressed it in that episode. Um, and I asked them to please go. I gave them the minute marker, but just for anyone else who may have a question, why do we pray, let your kingdom come if the kingdom is not now? Well, I would say that's why we pray thy kingdom come, because the kingdom is not now. <laughs> uh, there's there's no reason to pray that if we're already in the kingdom. Right. Uh, thy kingdom come, you know, implies it's not here, right? Or else the, the prayer request is pointless. It's kind of like Acts 14, verse 22, I think it is, where it says, you know, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. That statement doesn't make any sense, you know, if we're currently in the kingdom. So everything in the, and that's where this comes from, this, the so-called Lord's Prayer. Um, it's better said the disciples' prayer because Jesus was teaching them how to pray. I mean, Jesus didn't pray for us our sins, you know, our debts. So he was teaching them how to pray. If you want the Lord's Prayer, it's in John 17 but there he's teaching us how to pray and what you'll discover and i go into this in my book becoming kingdom and i really got this from dr tussain in his book commentary on matthew called behold the king that there's six different requests in matthew 6 verses 9 through 11. the first three of which are prayers for the kingdom to come they're different ways of saying lord bring in your kingdom and then the remaining three are needs that we will that we have while the kingdom is currently in a state of abeyance or postponement. So actually when you look at the Lord's Prayer and it starts off with thy kingdom come, you'll see it's actually an apologetic for why we're not currently in the kingdom. Or else the whole prayer doesn't make sense. So you know, we're praying for the kingdom of heaven to come. Really what we're praying for is Daniel 2, verse 44. Because mm -hmm. it says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will endure forever and will shatter the ten-king confederacy and the Antichrist in an instant, not gradually, but in an instant. And basically when we pray the so-called Lord's Prayer, 
Um, that's what we're praying for. We're praying for the time in history to come when the kingdom will be established on the earth. And in the meantime, I've got three needs that I have, which I won't have once the kingdom <laughs> comes. And I'm to pray for those as well. So the question to me was kind of strange because uh, it's actually proof that we're not in the kingdom or the whole prayer doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the answer was in the question. <laughs> it was one, one, of the, one of those kind of questions. But uh, yeah, I had Dr. Two Saint Two for most of my Bible X, and I, I was really fascinated by his teaching uh, on Acts and, and Pauline epistles there. And, uh, and, you know, we get all the way to 40 days after Christ's death and resurrection, and, you know, the disciples are still looking for the kingdom and hadn't come yet. And when they say, is it finally going to come? Are you now going to restore the kingdom? Jesus certainly right then and there could have dispelled the notion of a literal future earthly kingdom. And he could have said, you silly disciples, it's already here. Enjoy. But he didn't. He, he, he affirmed the fact that it's future, and he just told them it's not time yet. You're not, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, you know. And so, yeah, absolutely uh, uh, well said. And that is true. I mean, yeah, if you read it, um, you claim the kingdom is not now, then why do we pray? Yeah, they did kind of answer their own question. Because that's true, we're praying for the kingdom. So when we pray, does that, it doesn't rush it because God already has a timeline. No, but it's, um, you know, it's a yearning in the heart. Um, it's, it's like an acknowledgement. I mean, I pray it all the time because we all agree that this world is getting, <laughs> things aren't getting better. I, I really want God's kingdom to come. Amen. And in the meantime, um, I represent, as do all of us, kingdom values on in the devil's world. That's why we're called ambassadors. So if you're an ambassador from a, like if I'm America's ambassador to a foreign country, I'm not there to usher in regime change. You know, I'm there to represent, now maybe some do that, but generally, you know, my naive view is I'm not there to usher in regime change. I'm just there to, you know, represent American values on Iranian soil or wherever I am. That's what we're doing right now. We're sons of the kingdom, inheritors of the kingdom, and we're trying to represent kingdom values in the devil's world. That's where salt and light comes in. And that's why we're so hated, because we just don't fit in here. That's right. Um, okay, so this question here, um, I, I thought it was quite fascinating, actually. So I don't know if it's on your list. I, I believe I might have given you the abridged. Abridged means short, right? I try to speak big words, but sometimes I'm like, maybe that's not right. Okay, so it says here, if all of our tears will be wiped away, and we won't remember what happened on Earth, in the new phase of life, how will we know who David, Solomon, Noah, Paul, and others are? We can't hear their stories if we won't remember our former lives. Can you help me understand what exactly will be taking, I'm sorry, can you help me understand what exactly we will be talking about for all eternity? I mean, I would love to talk, I would say I don't need glasses, but for driving. I mean, I would love to talk to a lot of people in the Bible, but I guess we won't be able to. Can someone clarify? No, that, that's that's not true at all. I, I uh, First of all, I just preached last week in Nebraska a message called Grace Face to Face, which is what heaven will be like and what will, will we be doing in heaven. And I talked specifically about how we will be sitting down with great men and women of faith and learning you know, from them and, and really uh, un hearing their stories. And so uh, I think they're confusing 
the idea of no more tears with somehow no more knowledge. Um, uh, our identity is, is eternal. It's who we are. I may not think the Lord look like this in my flesh and bone. I mean, Paul said flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, so we're going to have a glorified body, but I'll still be JB, you'll still be Kim, Andy, you'll still be Andy, and uh, I believe in the kingdom someday uh, I'll be able to look Andy in the eye, uh, uh, which I cannot do now because he's like seven feet tall. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so we'll certainly know each other. Uh, we will we will, you know, be able to have those experiences. It's not that our memories will be wiped. It's that all of the negative experiences that are a result of the curse of sin will be uh, wiped out because there shall be no more sin. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 4 doesn't say, it says no more tears. It doesn't end saying about memory. And the only thing I would add is, you remember the um, rich man that died in unbelief and went into Hades. Abraham specifically said to him, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things, so he could remember back. And in fact, he, if you drop down to Luke 16, 27 and 28, he remembered he had five brothers and he wanted, uh, what was it, Lazarus to go warn him. Mm-hmm. So he's in he's in hell he's in Hades and he could think back. So if people in Hades could think back, why would that privilege be denied to people in heaven? And I think too the former life, if I'm not mistaken, um, that's not even referring to that. That's like that's I don't want to say works because we just talked about that. But put away your former life, meaning when you you know are saved through faith alone, your former life. That's how I take like when I read that. Um, I didn't understand that because I had never read a passage of what the former life. I always took that as put your former life, you know, aside. That's how I always decided to read that. Yeah, does it say former life or former things? Uh, it says the old things. Yeah, oh, it doesn't say former life. It says old things. Oh, former things. Life, yeah. Mm-hmm. We can't hear their stories if we won't remember our former life. Yeah, your questioner might have said former life, but the text never says former life. That's my point. Oh, right. No, I'm saying, yeah, I've never heard that, that we won't remember our former lives. Like I said, the only passage I know in the Bible about former lives is the old and versus the new, I, as far as salvation, not in eternity. So, I don't know. Now, even 2 Corinthians 5.17, I don't think, says your former life. It says, behold, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Um, so our former life doesn't disappear. We still, on earth anyway, continue to deal with the consequences of, of sin and, 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 and realities and so forth. Definitely. Well, that's good because, you know, uh, the first person I want to talk to, well, besides Jesus, is Joseph. So I'm glad that Joseph hmm. and I can have a conversation. <laughs> I was like, oh, let's see what that answer is. Okay, so finally the last two. We're going to talk first about the rapture, and then we're going to end on what is happening today. Uh, That one is pretty meaty. So, uh, a few things. I'm just going to tie them all in together because some of them are the same. A family member also stated on one of my uh, videos, he said, and I quote, Jesus coming to secretly rapture us away before the bad stuff happens is a doctrine of devils. You believe a false doctrine. Then someone was concerned if Matthew 24... It's not about, a lot of people, let me just say, 
are very concerned of what they believe is real regarding the rapture. So if Matthew 24 is not for us, why does it seem like it's happening all the time? Is the rapture real? And then actually, even at the end of my podcast, I always say this, um, you know, look up, which maybe you guys can correct me on that today. So in uh, Luke, we're told when you see these things, look up. But then they said there's no signs, so why should we look up? That was actually asked twice, because then they said, well, you say, you know, when your redemption draws near, blah, blah, blah. Then it says, 2 Timothy 3 explains some things that will mark the last days. It seems like we're there. Why do I doubt God, and why do I doubt the rapture? And then they kind of get, you know, happy again when they hear a pastor. So anyway, that's basically it. So the rapture of the doctrine... Uh, the rapture doctrine is false, and uh, there's no secret rapture. The uh, gospels are not pertaining to the rapture, and then I'm concerned: is what is the rapture real? Should I believe in this? Because we're living in some really bad times. Okay, I'll, I'll try some of that. When they when they say it's a doctrine of devils, because we believe we're going to be taken away before bad stuff comes. I mean, we don't teach that. Mm -hmm. but, um, John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In the world you'll have tribulation. So we're not teaching an exemption from bad stuff. Uh, we're under Satan's wrath, man's wrath, the world's wrath, constantly. But there is a form of wrath that we are exempted from, and that's God's wrath. And that begins when Jesus starts opening the seven-sealed scroll in heaven. So we can't be here once that scroll you know, starts to get opened. And they're calling it a doctrine of devils, you know, because they're trying, they're going with the old Dave McPherson mentality where he's trying to argue that this came from a, a Scottish charismatic girl, this preacher rapture doctrine named Margaret MacDonald. And they're trying to say, you know, she was dialed into the occult. And so, you know, her doctrine that she brought forth is also occultic. But the truth of the matter is that's been refuted. You know, eight ways to Sunday. Um, there's no tr truth in that at all. We believe in the rapture, not because of anybody that ever taught it, whether it be Darby or whoever, but it's in the Bible. And we're exempted from divine wrath. And that starts in Revelation 6, so we can't be here for Revelation 6 and following. So it's not a doctrine of devils. Um, concerning some of these questions about, you know, the birth pangs and things like that. Both Dr. Hickson and I agree that the church is not in the Olivet Discourse. We're not saying that the rapture is not in the Gospels, because you do find it in the other discourse that Jesus gave just a few days later called the Upper Room Discourse, which concerns the church in John 13 through 17. And there you find the rapture disclosed for the very first time in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. So we, the church is in the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17, but we're not in the Olivet Discourse, because the Olivet Discourse concerns God's end-time program for Israel. That's why it says things in it, like pray that your flight will not take place on the Sabbath. That's Jewish. Uh, we don't worship the Lord on the last day of the week. We worship Him on the first day of the week in the church age because that's when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And, you know, why does it look like the birth pains are happening now? Well, the birth pains of Matthew 24 correlate exactly with 
with the sale judgments. And so when you understand it from that vantage point, yeah, things can be bad today, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Once that seven sealed scroll starts getting opened, which correlate with the birth pains, you're going to see in, in a nanosecond, one quarter of the world's population destroyed. By the time you get to Revelation 9, half of the world's population is destroyed. And, you know, people can complain about COVID all they want, but COVID is absolutely nothing uh, compared to what is coming. And then when it says, look look up for your redemption, draw nigh, that is in Luke 21, verse 28. That also is in the Olivet Discourse concerning Israel. And so... Well, I, I like it too, but the, the fact of the matter is it's a specific command given to Israel you know, in the tribulation period as they see the signs happening. Uh, they know from Daniel's time frame that there's only you know, a short time left until Jesus or Yeshua comes back and gathers them. In this case, not vertically, but horizontally in fulfillment of many Old Testament passages and gathers them and protects them from the beast or the Antichrist who's trying to wipe every one of them off the face of the earth. And so people in that time period are to look up for their redemption draws near uh, because Yeshua is coming back at the end of the 70th week to gather them and protect them. So rather than use you know, Luke 21, verse 28 as your marquee, I would, I would encourage you to use Titus 2.13. Chapter two, yeah, chapter two, verse thirteen, which is for us. Oh, uh, yeah, and I that this upsets a lot of people, you know, when I talk like this because their ministry marquee and everything is based on all of these all of the discourse passages. But if you really care about context, you start to see what passages apply to us and which ones don't. I mean, I can go find a lot of passages in the Book of Leviticus about bringing an unblemished lamb into the temple on Saturday, <laughs> but I don't do that because I'm a New Testament Christian. Yeah, so I have a lot that I'd love to add. Um, I'll try to distill it down, but uh, completely agree. A Andy and I are in lockstep there, uh, and I'm actually teaching through the Olivet Discourse right now, so if you go to our website um, and click on videos, and then what lies ahead is the series. I just finished part 16. And, um, and we've spent the last three weeks in the Olivet Discourse. So just this Sunday, I was in those passages. And, um, you know, the idea here is when you, he's talking to future Israel that will be alive at the return of Christ. He's saying, when you see these signs, look up because, you know, your redemption is near, even at the door. And uh, Dr. Woods and I actually will both be speaking at a conference coming up May 28th and 29th in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, called the Mid-America Prophecy Conference, an annual event. And we've both spoken there many times before, but this year's theme is at the door, you know, signs of, of the times. And so while it is true that that passage clearly is speaking to the tribulation generation, and I even showed a chart in which I correlate the sealed judgments with Matthew 4, 24, 4 to 14, as Dr. Woods was saying, um, the, the, we can certainly apply some of the same principles from epistolary literature where we are told to always look up and set our minds on things above and wait eagerly waiting up at Decamai, eagerly waiting for the return of Christ and the blessed hope. So I don't think there's anything wrong with 
ending your broadcast with reminding us to look up. It's just we don't want to imply that that particular verse is is referring to the rapture because it's not. And you know, Doctor Woods is right. I've I've we have a mutual friend. Uh, I won't mention his name, but good good man of God and great Bible teacher who, you know. Uh, we've talked. He and I have talked a lot about the the, the Olivet Discourse and how the Rapture is not in there. But yet, one of the key themes and charts of their ministry is based on an interpretation of the Olivet Discourse that includes the Rapture, and it's difficult to kind of dial that back. So, uh, you know, uh, it's unfortunate, um, but we've got to let the text uh, speak for itself. And uh, and the Olivet Discourse simply is not about the rapture. And you're right, Dr. Woods, the first inkling from the mind of God that we ever have on planet Earth of this mystery of the rapture, which Paul develops later in his epistles, did not happen until the next day. The Olivet Discourse was Wednesday, Thursday night in the upper room. Jesus has the uh, upper room discourse where he washes the disciples' feet, institutes the Lord's Supper as they celebrate the Passover, and he reveals that the, the doctrine of the rapture when he says, when I go, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, you may be. Not that where you are, I may be. It's not talking about the second coming there. It's talking about the rapture. And so he alludes to it there. And then as, you know, in the progress of Revelation, God unveils more of it in First Thessalonians, First Corinthians 15, Titus, and, and throughout the New Testament. So um, when you read the Olivet Discourse, you've got to read it with a dispensational sensitivity and understanding the progress of Revelation that at that point, the rapture, he's not speaking to the church, both the church and the rapture were, were mysteries at that point. So then, quick question, because I know I battled this um, as well, so I was, I was happy to see I'm not the only one in that camp. Um, and I know the Bible says that things will wax worse and worse, but there are some times, honestly, that I doubt, like, do what I believe is true, because the world has progressively, it seems like every single day you just can't keep up with the negativity and the news. So how do you... You know, is that wrong to say, man, maybe maybe the rapture, uh, are we really going to be raptured, I guess? Is, are we really going to get out of this mess, and why are we still here? You know, those questions that I think a lot of people, if they're honest with themselves, do ask. Yeah, I mean, Andy said it best. You know, nobody that I know of, and he and I both uh, network with some of the top dispensational scholars in the world. I consider Andy to be one of them. And we both are members of Pre-Trib Research Group, the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, and some of the top think tanks that really study and teach and promote the biblical doctrine of, of the pre-tribulational rapture. And I've never heard anybody teach that the rapture rescues us before things get really bad. I mean, that is a very unbiblical and naive approach. It's really bad for a lot of Christians right now in the world. They're being persecuted, tortured, uh, martyred, and for 2,000 years it's been uh, really bad. So we, no one teaches, and certainly the Bible doesn't teach, that the, the rapture rescues us before things get bad. As he said, the rapture rescues us from the prophetic day of the Lord's wrath, which begins with the unveiling of the first seal judgment. So uh, we are not, you know, if, if the Lord tarries is coming, I've said this many times at prophecy conferences, has it ever occurred to you that if the Lord tarries is coming, we might all be raptured as Chinese citizens? I mean, we don't know. We don't know how long... What, what's going to happen next. The, the world is rapidly spiraling out of control. There's a uptick in, in, in the spirit of the Antichrist that John tells us is already at work in the world today. I'm going to be speaking about that at the Tulsa conference. 
And, and so, you know, we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, because I don't want my, my granddaughter to have to grow up in this or my younger children. But, you know, if he tarries, we may have to face the same kinds of persecutions that other believers have. We're not immune to it just because we're Americans. We've been very, very blessed. And uh, we, we need to recognize that's not an entitlement. Yeah. And just real quick, you know, is it real? Uh, it's not just a catching up. It's the resurrection, which is obviously a cardinal resurrection. Paul says you don't have resurrection of Jesus. You don't have Christianity. Yeah. He rose first as the first fruits, and his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So it's, I like to joke, it's not just your airlift, but it's your facelift. It's your airlift and your facelift, you know, simultaneously. And it's a wonderful thing because it's the point in history where your actual practice catches up 100% with your position. And the, you're in a body, it's still, you're you. But the sin nature, it's the body is God intended before the sin nature, without the sin nature, in other words. Yeah, and so it, it, so it's a very it's the way the Bible describes it. It's a very real historical thing. It's just as real as was the empty tomb, you know, two thousand years ago. Yeah, and we have a passage that explicitly makes that connection, right, uh, Andy? In First Thessalonians four, the preeminent passage on the rapture, Paul connects the doctrine, the belief in the doctrine of the rapture, with the belief in the resurrection of Christ. So when people say, I doubt the rapture, the first thing I ask them is, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Because if you do, Paul says, we believe Jesus died and rose again, and so also we believe, and then he goes on to explain the rapture. So there's a connection there. You can't have one without the other. And it's in the resurrection chapter. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, Yeah. also. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I like that. And um, sometimes, you know, honestly, I need that... um, that's why I think I listen to just a, a few pastors that are out there. Um, and again, it's not that I don't believe in the rapture. I think I do. Sometimes I that doubt comes in. Sometimes I feel like I'm a doubting Thomas because of the state of the world. But then, honestly, and I've listened to uh, many of your messages, um, Dr. J. Jimmy, and also just so you, I just want to plug this really quick. Um, I haven't seen one recently, so maybe that's what YouTube is pulling. But your culture shock. Um, yeah, so we all of that's on all of that's on our website. We just did episode ten last week, so it's less than a week old. It was called Mayberry, and I think you'll really enjoy that. A culture shock for those who don't know is short little nine or ten minute episodes where I take something that's happening in real time and sort of overlay biblical principles and talk about it. So, uh, and I always give the gospel very briefly at the end. So anyway, yeah, check out Culture Shock again. Notbyworks.org videos. Culture Shock. Very good. But that's why I continue, I mean, I do stay in the Word, but I guess, to your point, you know, I'm still fine here in America, you know, I'm not being persecuted. I guess I just, I so desperately want to go home, Mm. I just sometimes ask why, you know, Um, but uh, I'm still here, I want that glorified body. I'm not aging like a fine wine, that's for sure. Okay, so this last one, and I want to read, I think again, I gave you guys the shorter version but um, there's been a lot of confusion, and I'm not going to call out the pastor's name because there's more than one um, regarding the COVID vaccine. Um, but I do want to read this person's comment. Um, so, and then we'll go into the next two questions outside of what this person said. They said, I am confused. Thank you for doing this. I watched this pastor. 
He always says that in Noah's day, all of mankind's DNA was tampered with. The only ones who were pure were Noah and his family. What I do not understand is this. If that is the case, why did Noah preach for 120 years? They were all going to hell anyway, according to this pastor. The second part, sorry, same pastor, claims the same is happening with the COVID vaccine. That just doesn't seem like something that God would do. He claims their DNA RNA is modified. He calls it mRNA, which is true, but we'll get to that. He said it is altered like in Noah's day, and that is what makes them reject God during the tribulation because they are not human. My other question would be, why would there be 144,000 two witnesses proclaiming the gospel? Also, aren't there angels too? There are many Christians out there taking the vaccine, so their DNA is altered and they are not human? So the corona vaccine alters your DNA and now you're damned to hell? Um, so let's speak upon that. That's a, a lot of, of information in there. So basically what they're asking is if they take the vaccine, are they damned to hell? And will this vaccine now alter their DNA, which will then in turn um, make them get the mark of the beast, but they're um, damned to hell. And then, so let's answer that one first, and then we'll get to the... Um... All right, well, I'll take a shot at this. Um, if people go to my Angelology series... Uh, which they can find on YouTube or at the Sugarland Bible Church website. I can go into a lot of detail, but I do believe there was an angelic issue in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And I believe it was a demonic attempt to tamper with the genetics of the human race so that the Messiah, who must come from the seed of the woman, must be fully human. In other words, could never be born. And I believe that's who the Nephilim were. And I think it's one of the reasons that God sent the flood. Um, as you go through the Old Testament, you'll see numerous satanic attempts to prevent the birth or the lineage and ultimately the birth of Jesus. And this was just one strategy in terms of altering the genetic composition that Satan was employing in the antediluvian, you know, pre-flood world. However, having said all that, I do not... I think that was a one-time strategy that failed that Satan is not implementing today. First of all, why would Satan do it? Uh, the Messiah has already been born 2,000 years ago. He lost that, that round. And a lot of it comes from a misunderstanding of Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39, which says, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And they basically are arguing that the whole Nephilim angelic eruption that happened in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, is going to happen again. And that's a misreading of Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39, because it's qualified. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. In what sense? It's qualified. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and they were completely caught off guard by the flood. So the only analogy that's given there in Matthew 24, 38 and 39 is the unbelievers are gonna act like unbelievers. They're gonna just be caught up in life and survival and physical things, and they're gonna be completely and totally taken off guard 
know, by the second advent of Christ, when Jesus comes back at the end of the 70th week and establishes his kingdom after bringing in violent judgment. So I think there's a way to be responsible about this. I do hold to the angel view in Genesis 6, but I am not a last days Nephilim uh, eschatologist. In other words, I don't believe in Nephilim eschatology. There are ministries today, their, their whole focus is on these last days Nephilim. And I'm not one of those, even though I do hold to the angel view um, in, uh, in Genesis 6. So I do not believe that taking the vaccine is some kind of unpardonable sin, you know, whereby your DNA is altered, you're no longer human, and you're no longer a candidate for the gospel. Uh, I, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where taking a vaccination is some sort of warning that you're damning yourself for all eternity. I mean, they're building a theology out of some very obscure scripture, and they're taking a lot of things out of context. So, really, the vaccine is not the mark of the beast for the simple reason that we don't have the beast yet. <laughs> uh, the, mark of the, the mark of the beast system is in Revelation 13, 16 through 18, and you have to have the fully functioning Antichrist on the scene. I would argue that that system doesn't even come into full-fledged existence until the second half of the tribulation period. And it's only people living in that time period post-rapture that understand exactly what they're doing. That by taking the mark on their right hand or their forehead, they're rejecting the true Christ and they're swearing allegiance to the Antichrist. Only that generation you know, is damning themselves. Now, having said all that, for me and my house, hold, I don't think it's particularly smart to take the vaccine right now. Just, just because of all of the health risks associated with it. Um, Operation Warp Speed, I mean, I'm no scientist, but you have to have time to determine if side effects are going to show up. And by rushing everybody into it, you know, take it now, take it now, take it now, they're not giving enough time to see what kind of side effects are going to be there. So I'm going to be a vaccine holdout as long as I possibly can. Now, having said all that, if, if I am forced to take it, I don't see myself as taking the mark of the beast. Uh, and I don't see myself as altering my DNA where I lose my salvation, even though um, I do hold to the angel view of Genesis 6. So it's like people today are taking some good ideas in theology and they're just running crazy with them and building it into you can't receive Christ if you're vaccinated. And they're building it into the Nephilim are going to come back and they're getting into Nephilim eschatology. And I think it's a, a great misreading of Matthew 24. I think what Satan was doing there with the angelic eruption and the creation of the Nephilim, which, which literally means fallen ones, uh, I view it as a one-time strategy that Satan used at, in the pre-flood world to stop the lineage leading to Jesus Christ. And he lost that round. That, by the way, is why Jesus, in between his resurrection and ascension, descended to where those spirits, which are always angels, fallen angels are, in 1 Peter 3, and he preached. The verb there is not 
euangelizo, evangelized, it's preached, proclaimed, that they are on the losing side of history. And their attempt to stop his birth failed. And that, by the way, is because they left what's natural. That's why God incarcerated them, them there. And so I don't see it repeating because the rest of the demons will think, well, look what happened to our buddies that got involved in that. Um, and so they're not going to repeat it and get incarcerated. So anyway, that's a long answer. But yeah. in the series, I've got about four lessons trying to explain what I just said in a minute or two. Yes, and that link will definitely be posted because I learned a lot from that series as well. So that was an amazing angel demonology. Was there, wasn't there three? Oh, there was four of them. Four yeah. of them. Oh, four. Okay. So... Um, let me let me weigh in on this because I knew if we talked long enough, we might come up with some things where we have some slight nuanced differences. Um, first of all, let me piggyback on all that I agree with. Certainly, I completely agree with the misinterpretation of Matthew 24. It's an analogy, and it's in the section of the Olivet Discourse after Jesus has given all of the signs. The rest of 24 and all of 25 are basically just exhortations to be ready, to be watchful. And he's saying, just like in the days of Noah, even though Noah was out there proclaiming judgment and warning, they ignored it, went about their business, and it caught them off guard. The same thing will be true during the tribulation for many Jews who, in spite of the clear warnings that are given in Scripture, uh, in spite of the 144,000, in spite of all that, they will still turn a deaf ear and, and it'll catch them off guard. So I think you can summarize the Noah analogy with two words, be ready. I do not think, I think it's, it's, it's a fundamental mistake of interpreting uh, analogies and parables and the like when yeah. we try to go back and take every single detail and somehow make some present day you know, connection to it. So I completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, one primary point. What's the central point? And I, I would summarize it in, with the words, be ready. So completely agree with that. Um, I, I take a slightly different view of the Nephilim. Um, I definitely believe it's completely overplayed by some really wacky people. Um, but I, I go back to Genesis, not based on Matthew 24, but Genesis 6, where it says there were in those days and also afterward. So I do think that this, this notion of, of a demonic presence uh, is still active. I don't think I agree with you that God, that Satan has been trying all kinds of ways. You know, he tried through Herod to kill all the babies. He's tried through Judas to kill Christ. You know, all of he's trying constantly to win this cosmic battle between uh, good and evil, between God and Satan. And it will reach a climax, of course, during that final seven years leading up to Armageddon. Um, and I get into this same thing of angels and demons and the Nephilim in the first three videos of my Spirit of the Antichrist series. Um, and so that's available on DVD. Um, but uh, so, you know, I t take a slightly different view. I wouldn't say that there's nothing, there's no continuing presence because I struggle with Genesis, what Genesis 6 says about that. But as far as the mark of the beast, the way I, I get that question a lot and the way I describe it is that, as Dr. Wood said, absolutely, the mark of the beast is not a reality now because we're not in the tribulation and, and the church won't be here when it becomes a reality. So no, it's not the mark of the beast, but it could represent the technology that might be used to be the mark of the beast. Um, that, you know, certainly if, I, if the rapture were to happen today and the Antichrist were to be unveiled in the coming weeks and the tribulation were to start with the signing of the peace treaty and three and a half years later he rolls out the mark of the beast with the false prophet, 
you know, that would be an ideal technology for him to use, you know, this mRNA technology. Uh, and then the only other thing I would maybe nuance a little bit is that uh, not for any theological or, or certainly eschatological reasons, but because of the dangers, we and my family have absolutely drawn a line in the sand about the vaccine. I would sooner die than take the vaccine. We will not take it. We've created uh, advanced directive cards that all of our adult children and our minors, we've created and signed them for them, making sure we won't do it. I'll, I disagree with a lot about the, you know, the Luciferian agenda that is driving the reaction to this pandemic, but I'll still wear a mask if I have to. I'm not going to die on that hill. I'm not going to go to jail over it for expeditious reasons. I'll put on a mask, even though I think there's no scientific reason to do so. In fact, it can be unhealthy. But when it comes to the vaccine, there is so much data out there, and I was just watching some of it yesterday, from top-level, peer-reviewed scientific and medical journals, from PhDs and MDs and surgeons and pediatricians and top doctors like Dr. Sherry Tenpenny and uh, so forth that are, that are sounding the alarm about these vaccines, not just the mRNA ones, but also the Johnson & Johnson one, which, of course, we all know what happened there, which includes aborted fetal tissue in, in the actual vaccine. Uh, and that's a fact not in dispute. Um, and so uh, I've been sounding the alarm on this since last April of last year, before it even rolled out, when, when according to the mainstream narrative, it was just this, you know, it might take 18 months to get a vaccine. But then the, one of the board members from Moderna, was put in charge of Operation Warp Speed. And lo and behold, Moderna gets the contract, one of four, and they roll it out. Moderna has never once, put, other than this, put a product to market, never in their history of their company. Um, and they've been working on SARS, COVID viruses, virus immunizations for 20 years. We still don't have a vaccine for SARS-1. And, and all of the animal trials that they've done for SARS uh, vaccine tests for the last 20 years, have they've died. The ferrets have died. The rats have died. It's, it t t destroys your fertility system. I'm telling you, nobody should take that vaccine. I'm not a medical doctor, but based on the experts and the science, it is extremely dangerous. And I, I tell everybody I know, don't take the vaccine. Yeah, another good source is Dr. Simone Gold. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Um, and just real quick on the mark of the beast, uh, you know, even though I don't think the vaccine is the mark of the beast, I do believe in prophetic stage setting. Mm -hmm. In other words, prophecy is such that it doesn't just in a vacuum happen. The stage, the stage is set ahead of time. Uh, you can see that with the prophecies of the first coming. You know, the Lord was setting the stage for the coming of Christ in the intertestamental period, you know, centuries in advance. And I think today with the vaccine and the masks, it may not be the mark of the beast in its official sense, but it clearly is psychological preparation of the masses. Or you can't, you know, what does this say? You can't buy or sell. I mean, they're telling you over and over again, you can't come into this store, you can't come into this restaurant, or you you can't go to this public place without this mask, and now they're upping the game to these vaccine passports. So it may, may not be the mark of the beast, but in my mind it's clear psychological preparation for what ultimately will become the mark of the beast. Amen. I agree. And um, uh, so then, and I agree with them. Um, uh, I, okay, let me back up. 
So, Andy, I agree with you with the Nephilim, um, 100%. Um, I, I believe that, in, I guess, in the flood when everyone was destroyed. But then I have also heard your messages, uh, Dr. Jamie, the first um, in the series that you had mentioned before. So it's always n nice to have two different viewpoints. However, I am always confused, and I agree with this question here, because I've always wondered that myself. If humans were inbred, literally angels um, inbreding the daughters, right? So these children, like, so why did Noah preach them? If they are tainted, then why would he even preach for 120 years? Did not did Noah not know that they were? Tainted? Well, he he wasn't preaching just to the Nephilim. He was preaching to all of the people on earth. Uh, at that time, the Nephilim were just the Nephilim were just the unfreezing event that that kind of crossed a line with God, and so he said for and we we know about that because of Jude and other correlating correlating passages. So this sin of the angels cohabiting with earthly women and creating a hybrid race was so offensive to a holy God that he brought the flood. But the problem is the text says that the Nephilim were there not only before the flood but afterward. And it's my belief that because of their hybrid nature and their spiritual nature, that they were able to, to go up into the spiritual realm during the flood, and therefore it did not destroy them. And so I think, uh, I think there's still uh, the offspring. Now, the demons are in Tartarus. The demons who left their proper domain are in Tartarus. We know that. They're imprisoned permanently. But the, the, uh, result, the uh, offspring, the, the hybrids, are, are still sort of, uh, and we see evidence of this all around us with shape-shifting, with, um, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, manifestations. And I get into that, I don't remember what episode number it is, but in my Spirit of the Antichrist series, I talk about the spirit of phenomena, which, as Dr. Wood said earlier, with each, you know, transitional stage, there seems to be an uptick in sort of supernatural things. And so I'm not, again, setting dates, or it may be 100 years or 1,000 years, we don't know. But if you just look around you, it's reasonable to say we see an increase in all of this type of phenomena. What, what about UFOs? Ever since December of 2017, when the New York Times broke the story, and now it's all over the place, Fox News, CNN, everybody talking about it. And the, and the Pentagon released what many of us have been saying for 30 years has, was out there, and everybody looked at you like you're a tinfoil hat kook. But now it's, it's, it's admitted that there are these phenomenalistic things that nobody can identify that have clearly are not of this earth. Now, I don't believe they're little green aliens. I think it's dimensional. I think it's spiritual and demonic, but that's an uptick in phenomena. And one last thing I'll say on that, and this is still in the theory stage with me, but I'm working on one of my presentations for Tulsa about Israel. And I, I can't, I have to believe that it was not a coincidence that the onslaught of UFO activity coincided with the birth of Israel as a nation. The earliest examples we have are 1947 with the, the Washington event with, uh, what's his name, the pilot that saw all of them, and then, of course, uh, the one down in, uh, you know, New Mexico. So, you know, and then, of course, they've just proliferated since then, and now it's just everywhere. So, I don't know if, I just feel like there's things are happening and that when Satan saw that Israel was reborn, of course, he's not omniscient. He doesn't have the mind of God, but he knows that Israel plays a role in the coming kingdom, so he thinks maybe it's getting close. And I just see there's a spiritual cosmic struggle taking place, and we see an increase in phenomena like that. That's just that's my view. 
I agree, and it was funny because I, um, God takes his podcast wherever he wants, and I kept feeling the nudge of the Holy Spirit to revisit my new age that I visited down the road, but on a different um, avenue. So uh, CE5 meditation, I discussed that before, but then I really went down this rabbit hole, and that's where I agree with you 100%, Dr. JV. And I didn't know that scripture verse was in the Bible, I, honestly. So I'm now I, I, I just got confirmation hearing you speak because my three, four epi- episodes ago, I started with angels and demons. I mean, aliens are really demons because the spiritual realm, as we know, the heavenly realm um, is a very active place, one where man should not visit. So these, these CE5 meditators back just five years ago, they were crazy people who would meditate out there in Joshua Tree. Hmm. And then I really started going down the rabbit hole. And I don't know if you've heard of this. I'm, I'm probably saying the guy's name uh, wrong. This is where, Dr. Andy, I wish I had uh, James, um, the other pastor point of view, because he's so good with words. Um, it's called the Marhishi effect. Hmm. So basically, their, their thinking is, and this has been around for a while, that if they can get 1% of the world to... Uh, communicate together and then peace will come and then there'll be a pulse shift and all this stuff. Yeah, think peace. So yeah. One, huh? yeah, the think peace movement, you know, visual, mm-hmm. visualize world peace. Yeah, Yeah. so or, what's or, so... Or reimagine. Reimagine <laughs> is what they're saying. Definitely. And what is so creepy about this is when I went down this rabbit hole, um, the CE5, so Dr. Stephen Greer, he's really uh, blew up. He has his own app now. But Demi Lovato is now involved. Now, Demi has millions of fans. So now you're going to have millions of people listening to the CE5. And the reason I'm fascinated with CE5 meditation is to your point, Dr. Uh, JB, I firmly believe they are tapping into the demonic. When they have visitations, that to me is that dark spiritual realm visiting them. And when they talk about the Pleiadians and all of these, um, the Ashtar command, all of these big demons that come out and speak to them. I know they don't call them demons, but that's what they are. The messages that they give, and then last week was regarding the rapture theory, and it's really creepy when you hear, because the Satan, Satan knows the Bible better than we do, when they get these commands and these messages, these channelers, they actually, it's... I don't know if you want to take time to watch it and share it. It's amazing because they will take literally bits and pieces of the Bible but put it in different verbiage regarding the rapture. They've mentioned where two, two, um, 20 million people vanish in one afternoon. They've mentioned um, how the good people stay, the bad people leave, and then the shift. And the, I mean, there are so many quotes down there. I had to stop because the podcast would have been five hours. So I do 100% believe in a very demonic realm, and I now, since you just said that, during the flood, they may have shifted um, and went in those heavenly places. But it, well, I, I, I wouldn't believe it just because I say it. I mean, I could be wrong, but uh, that's my view, and I would study it for yourself, and you have to wrestle with that Genesis 6 passage um, and, and, and just the whole reality of the spiritual realm and the demonic realm, you know. And it's scary. I mean, it really, uh, I had to really spend a lot of time in prayer in the Word doing that because it's a very dark place to be. So we already mentioned the mark of the beast, definitely not the vaccine, so we're not going to talk about that again. So um, 
are vaccines safe in general? And you kind of talked about that. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to finish out saying anything else regarding this vaccine. Um, you know, should Christians take it, not take it? Uh, or anything else that you guys want to say before we close out this week? Well, you know, other than the mark of the beast, leaving that discussion out of it, there's just so many things about this that bother me, this vaccine. I, I'll tell you what really bothers me is not just the warp speed, but the cancel culture where people like Simone Gold and others that have, that have been mentioned are just, they push a button and their viewpoint disappears. That bothers me because by my way of thinking, if their viewpoint is that fallacious, then just publish your own debunking video right? or your own your own position paper. But they don't do that. They, they just push a button and they're gone. And so the, the cancellation of alternative voices to me is is indicative of the weakness of their argument. Yeah. Words, they wouldn't do they wouldn't do that unless they were trying to hide something. Absolutely. That me a great deal. Yeah, I mean as an attorney, I mean you've you've always heard the saying that the uh, cover up is proof of the crime. Well, I mean yeah. it's the same thing with censorship. Censorship is always an example of suppressing the truth. When they cannot win the argument based on the facts, then they resort to just banning it and that's all of the one all of the five videos that i've had banned were banned because of my exposing based on you know journal of the american medical association the lancet new england journal of medicine top peer-reviewed articles simone gold uh, cherry tenpenny uh, dale bigtree all of these reputable scientists and doctors and uh, you know it's fine if you disagree i mean they could say that they disagree and put out a video and put the alternative yeah. view but when they cancel it it just shows you that they're desperate. What are they hiding? What is it that they don't want people to know? So do you believe then, either of you want to chime in on this, because um, I do know the mRNA. Now, Johnson & Johnson doesn't have the mRNA because there's four vaccines, right? you got Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and then Astra there, AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca. Which is not here. Yeah. But Johnson & Johnson doesn't have the mRNA. No, but it has aborted fetal right. tissue. But it has aborted fetal tissue. Correct. Yeah. So my thing is, I, I understand the difference between DNA and RNA. So I get all of that. Um, but can these vaccines like alter who we are? Or is it just, you see what I'm saying? That's where I think the, the rub comes in as well with these vaccines that people are listening to. Well, you know, Carrie Madej, if you listen to her, um, she claims they can. I, you know, it's it's outside of my pay grade, some of this stuff. I mean, I'm not a scientific person, but I, I can read people that are scientifically trained. I mean, Simone Gold, you know, she graduated from medical school at age 22 or age 23, and she happened to pick up a law degree on the side <laughs> from Stanford. I mean, um, and she grew up in a physician's home. You're, you're not talking about stupid people. I mean, you're, you're talking about people that basically were writing peer-reviewed articles, publishing uh, New York Times bestsellers, appearing even on Oprah Winfrey, and all of a sudden they said the wrong thing, you know, <laughs> concerning vaccinations, and cancel culture just tries to erase them. Um, so something, you know, <laughs> look, uh, something doesn't pass the smell test. Yeah, I, as far as the DNA, uh, I'm definitely intrigued by Carrie Majez's perspective, but I mean, you don't even need that horrific of a reality 
to to justify opposition to the vaccine. What the stated purpose of the mRNA vaccine is, it's an experimental technology never before been used, still in trials, by the way. So anyone who's taking it is part of a massive guinea pig trial. Uh, and by their own admission, what it's doing is taking a synthetic spike protein, creating, t teaching the body to create that to allegedly combat the original COVID SARS-2 variant that first came out. And, the, and, and there are two problems with that. One is it continues to create those spike proteins forever. <laughs> it doesn't just do it for a couple weeks, it's forever. Secondly, actually there are three problems. Secondly, the, the, there's so many different strains now of this, uh, you know, what I believe is a bioweapon. I think everybody understands it was created in a lab. Uh, that who's to say it would even... That we funded. That we funded, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that we funded out of North Carolina. So, but so it's almost irrelevant because there's different strains now since when it first came out over a year ago. But the third problem is part of what it does is attack your own body's natural antibody system. And so that when other viruses come in, it, they can, it, your body can't even protect against that. And so the jury is very much still out on just how horrific it is. I've heard experts and scientists and doctors on one extreme saying that this is a massive depopulation campaign that, you know, within the next five, six years, because of the way it affects male and female sterility, that it's going to be disastrous. Uh, I'm inclined to think the anecdotal evidence is piling up for that, even just in the last four or five days. There's all kinds of evidence that in your body's natural attempt to shed stuff through saliva and through skin follicles and hair follicles, people that have never been vaccinated but are standing near people who have are now having the same symptoms. Massive accounts of, you know, women with horrific menstrual cycles and miscarriages and moms who got the vaccine and then breastfeeding their six-month-old baby, that baby dies, you know. So uh, a lot of it's anecdotal. I'm not a medical doctor. All I can do is try to interpret. Uh, I'm not a stupid guy, but I'm not a medical doctor, so I have to rely on the science. And I can tell you there is a lot of opposition science, an uh, overwhelming amount of opposition science to the official narrative. And anybody who doesn't at least take a look at it and ponder it is just naive. Yeah, and Bill Gates, you know, in his family tree, you know, you've got a depopulation Planned Parenthood connection there, and we know that it's easier to control the masses via one world government if, if there's fewer masses to control. Yeah. Yeah, Zbigniew Brzezinski famously said in 2017, just before he died, that it used to be easier to control a million people, but today it is infinitely easier to kill a million people than to control a million yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, I saw that quote, yeah. The whole thing is honestly, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's sad, but um, at moments like that, I, I just am reminded how close, hopefully, we are to going home. And it just shows what's going to happen during the tribulation, because there's a lot of gullible people out there. But I'm sure we can sit here for a long time talking about the vaccines. Um, guys, you have been amazing. Thank you so much for your time um, today. I know that it is precious, and you guys have a lot going on. Um, do either of you um, want to close out and say anything to anyone, maybe encouragement or... Yeah, well, I, I'll just say something real quick. You know, there's in, in the Tower of Babel incident, God says, you know, if I'm paraphrasing here, if they do this, nothing will be impossible for them. And that's why God intervened, because the potential for evil 
had reached a feverish pitch where God had to step in and do something. And I would say that's pretty much where we're at today. You know, the, 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 our ability for evil has reached such a high level of potential that unless God intervenes, uh, you know, evil's going to spread all over the world in an unprecedented way. And that's why time is short. And both Dr. Hickson and I and yourself also agree very strongly that the only solution for mankind, you know, I was, I was, I saw a meme yesterday that said Trump is our only hope now. <laughs> and I, what, a, what an absurd non-Christian way of thinking. I mean, our only hope is Jesus. Amen. And Jesus, Jesus stepped out of eternity into time and he paid a price for all of us that we could never pay. And he, through his crucifixion, and he bodily rose from the grave, you know, vindicating who he was. And the empty tomb, you know, is, is, is one of the most validated uh, points of history. And his final words on the cross were, it is finished. So what he asks us to do is to trust in what he's done for us and not what we do for ourselves. And that's what people need to understand is they need to get on the right side of God in that respect as God is, is getting ready to intervene and do something dramatic because God can't allow this to keep going on and on and on. You know, he intervened at Babel. He intervened in the flood. He is about to intervene again. And, and in spite of that bad news, you know, that the sins of the world are about to be judged, the sins of the world have already been judged in the person of Jesus Christ. And we, he stepped into the line of fire and was our substitute, and we trust in what he has done. So anybody out there that's listening and gripped with fear, that would be our exhortation is to trust Christ for salvation today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Amen. You never promise tomorrow. It's a, it's a, it's an, there's an urgency to the gospel. And uh, to say what Andy said just a little bit uh, uh, more succinctly, I would just say there's, there seems to be uh, no frontier that Satan still needs to conquer in his cosmic struggle. He's just about, you know, got every area covered. So it does sort of beg the question, you know, is the Lord going to come back in, in, in very soon? Uh, I sure hope so. Maranatha. But yeah, the, the only answer is uh, faith alone in Christ alone. All right, gentlemen, have an amazing uh, day, rest of your day. Again, I so appreciate it. And Dr. JB, I would love to have you on in a couple of weeks if we can make it work. That would be great. Um, I really felt led to um, visit the vaccinations. I've done a lot of research on my own. Um, so if that's something that maybe interests you in a couple of weeks, um, I've got some new information. I would like your take on that. If you want, if you have the time, um, reach out, let me know. That would be great. Um, I don't want to give any of it away here, but I do believe the variants have a lot of things to do with the vaccinations. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but anyway, guys, stay safe out there, and uh, I guess I'll change the end of my podcast to uh, Titus, because that is true. Yeah. You know? Looking for our blessed hope, right, and the glorious appearing. Is that right? I really, I stink at memorization. But anyway, guys, have an amazing day. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, until we see each other again, hopefully. Okay. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Yep. Thanks, Kim. God bless. Bye. Bye.